Welcome to another episode of Pod Like a Hole presents a space podity. This is a discussion of all things David Bowie. So what we do, we go track by track on each of his 27 studio albums, but we don't do it in any uh, order, backwards, forwards. We're going random, baby. Uh, we roll our diamond dice and it brings us to our next record, which was his 10th record, uh, released in 1976, Station to Station. With me, as always, this is Mark Branstead speaking. Um, I've got Stephen Earl with me. The European canon is here. And also, Eric Monroe. It might, it must be the side effects of recording Never Let Me Down last time. I'm still nursing a hangover from that night. <laughs> Oh man, I really, uh, really had to get lubed up. You know what's to, funny about uh, that? Do that fucking episode. Is that Eric um, kept telling us he was he was lily hammered uh, when we recorded that one, <laughs> and I couldn't tell at all. And maybe it's because Eric has gotten good at hiding his tells now. Um, <laughs> but I was also thinking about that with with this album. Is that Dave Bowie keeps saying he's like I was so high on cocaine and peppers I don't remember a minute of it. And, and a lot peppers. Of people, yeah. that, was, that was his diet. We'll yeah. get to that. Oh, I got yeah. you. And, but okay. a lot of people, including also Manifold Earth, were like, I don't know. He was acting just normal for David Bowie to me. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, maybe either he was really good at hiding it or it wasn't as bad. I think he just got good at hiding it. Yeah. Um, so here we are. Here we are. So uh, episode four, um, Station to Station. We deserve, we earned this because I got to tell you, Black Star was a great album. Uh, Space Oddity was, eh, it was all right. It had to dig for some interesting conversation. Manifold Earth, or I'm sorry, no, God, apologies. Never Let Me Down. Uh, they both the old gravity. Exactly, As, I was just going to say yeah. that. <laughs> um, Never Let Me Down. Oh, man, that was tough. That was so, a tough one. So we earned this, and also this is the first one we've done in our David Bowie phase that's in person. Right. So. That's right, live. Live. We did it live, folks. Yeah. So, without further ado, the year is 1976. What is the year of 1976 like? Paint a picture for us. Sure, 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 sure. So the uh, average income is sixteen thousand dollars. Sixteen thousand average income per year. Uh, Average cost of a new house forty three thousand dollars. Monthly rent two hundred and twenty dollars. Oh man! So here's some big news, Uh, Mark. You'd be on the streets if it wasn't for this. Two Steves got together and created a company in 1976. Oh, boy. Called Apple. So they, you know, there you go. Yeah. Turtlenecks and phones revolutionized <laughs> them both. <laughs> Mom jeans and white sneakers. I got to tell you, I was. That's a uniform. I was fascinated by Apple products when I was a really young kid because we were a PC family. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, I think most most of us all grew up in PC we, houses. This, yeah. this, in Auburn, yeah. my mom had this hippie, smart, bookish family friend. And they had an Apple IIe of some sort. And I would play those weird, like, green and black Apple IIe video games. Yeah. And it was the whole other world. So. Something I never heard of before called the Cod Wars happened in uh, the U- between the UK and Iceland. Fishing wars. Ah, I was thinking pieces. Cod yeah, pieces. No, no, Labyrinth isn't for another decade, but exactly. all right. Exactly. <laughs> on, the, on the high seas. Um a, uh, fa- if you know your gymnastics uh, celebrities, Nadia Kamenichi. The only gymnastics celebrity I know is the star of Jim Cotta. And you don't even know her name. You just said the star of Jim Cotta. He's a man. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we had a satellite land on Mars called the Viking One. And uh, th- some of the fashions that were going around uh, during 1976, you had the rugby pullover. 
You had the Romeo slip-on shoe. Pattern jackets. This, these look like uh, some kind of mix between Scandinavian and Cosby. I'll show my friends here on this one. but uh, It's pretty good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It looks like some of the stuff that he might wear on the, uh, the ice the hole tour. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is, this is a big one. The first ever album marketed as a punk album came out by the, by the Damned. The album was New Rose. And that's a, that's a good band. Yeah, okay, I'd never gotten yeah. to the damn. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, they're, they're, they, cause they've got some goth crossover, which makes them kind of, kind of timeless in their own way. In fact, the lead singer married, uh, I don't even know her name, but the girl from uh, uh, Sisters with Mercy. So they're, they're like, you don't know her name, but Heather is married to you, huh? I know. The good thing she doesn't listen to the show. I'm back on the couch when I get home. You know, for whatever reason, uh, the damned and the cramps, for whatever reason, exist in the same universe. Sure. And I don't know if the, they cramps is a little more psychobilly punk. Um, yeah. And damned is like, they were, they were just pretty much punk when they came out and then they went to some darker territory. And okay. Some like gothy stuff in the, in the eighties. So sure. big films. Um, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Great Jack film. Baby. Great uh, film. All the President's Men. Great film. You know, Both on the AFI list. That's right. Watergate was still fresh, fresh in the memory, because uh, uh, Jimmy Carter was the president, so once removed from Nixon's replacement, Gerald Ford. Um, Jimmy Carter, sweet man. I think we can all agree. Sure. Uh, the Omen. History's greatest monster, according to an episode of The Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> the Omen came out. That's an amazing movie. I just rewatched that two weeks ago. It's that that one's so good. If you guys haven't rewatched that one in a while, I, it's been like at least ten years. It's that one's got style. It's got Gregory Peck. It's got David Warner, and it's got a Devil Child. It's wonderful, wonderful film. <laughs> Outlaw Josie Wales. That's a good one. Um, and uh, Taxi Driver. That's also a great one. Right, right. And then, uh, of course, uh, this is Steven, Steven's baby here, Rocky. You know, I got to say, like, the cinema in the 70s is almost untouchable. It's fantastic. Like, well, it's we just get like a, a f- uh, hit factory. We got to get, even though it's not a hit tonight, we had a very interesting movie that we get to discuss. That I, I was, when I was watching The Main Field Earth, I was like, this is very 1970s. And that's yeah. a good thing. That was you know? the first actual run through. I, I used to own that. I think I've watched it in jibs and drabs. And that was uh, the first time I actually sat down. I was like, I'm watching yeah. this, goddammit. Yeah. We'll be getting to that. Yeah. But we were one year away from the film that changed everything. One year away. Right. Um, and they just opened the big the big land out in out in Southern Ed, California. Star Wars. Mark's talking about Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But this isn't a Star Wars podcast. No, I, I, think, think I, think, I don't think there's any of those. I was thinking there. about that, though. I was reading online that everybody's going to the Star Wars one, so Disneyland's empty right now. Well, they have to, you have to get a reservation right now to get into Star Wars land. That's it. Uh, between now and the end of June... 
If you don't have a reservation and you buy yourself a Disneyland ticket, you can look on from the outside gates. They're not letting you through. Well, the pictures I saw on the internet say that Disneyland's emptier than usual right now, which makes me want to go to Disneyland. I can believe it because everyone that's there is just waiting to go into Star Wars. Well, it's kind of like when I was a kid, my family went the right when Indiana Jones opened. Oh, yeah. And the line for Indiana Jones was to the back of the park. Oh, yeah. It was to, like back to Toontown. Oh, yeah. And uh, I was just like, fuck this. I'm going to go in the uh, Haunted Mansion seven times in a row. <laughs> you know? So. Yeah, 70s, back to 70s cinema. It's probably one of my favorite eras, too, just because you know, they didn't feel like anything needed to be glossy. People were ugly. <laughs> the, ta- yeah. the, the cinematography was beautiful, but the locations were often, you know, were often ugly. They weren't, it wasn't pristine. Right. Um, and it was understated. I mean, there was, there was, and you know, there was, there was a little sadness to everything. It was, it was, it was a great era. Queen, Rod Stewart, Elton John. Elton John, his movie just came out. Rocket Man. Bay City Rollers. Barry right. Manilow, Diana Ross. Bay City Ro- Rollers. We all know about because of the So I Married an Axe Murder. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they just have that one song, right? Saturday Night? Yeah. Is that what the name of the song is? Turn off the Bay City Rollers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mike Myers. Yeah. TV, Carol Burnett Show, Six Million Dollar Man, Kojak. Kojak. Jefferson's All in the Family, Good Times and Mash. Those are the big shows, 1976. So that's what the world was doing in 1976. Hold on. Oh. oh Hold on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hold on. I think I hear that theme song. <laughs> so, in the world Whammy. where things really ma- matter, in the world of sports, the, uh, the Stanley Cup was won by the Montreal Canadiens. Over the Philadelphia Flyers. It's a good name. Absolutely. The New York Americans. The World Series. The Big Red Machine swept the New York Yankees. That'd be the Cincinnati Reds. Oh, yeah. It's a great nickname. The Big Johnny Red Bench. Machine. Yep. The Big Red Machine is also, during that decade, what ran over Ray Fossey in an all-star game and ruined the guy's career. Oh, yeah. And to this day, he still is one of the part of the A's broadcast team. And you can always tell when Ray's had a, a couple. Um... Was Ray on the Indians when he got ran over? Or no, he was must have been in the American League at that point. It was an all-star game, so I'm not oh, sure. Oh, it was the all-star game. That's yeah. right. He, he might have been on the Indians. Oh, Pete Rose ran him over, right? right. Yeah. Also, which is just ridiculous because the all-star game, especially then, was meaningless. Yeah. You know. Super Bowl X. The Steelers beat the Dallas Cowboys. And uh, in basketball, speaking of which, this week... The NBA Finals are happening, and the Golden State Warriors are taking on, again, back to Canada, the Toronto Raptors. And the Raptors took game one. Everyone in America is a Canadian if they don't live in the Bay Area right now. (laughs) And in basketball, the Boston Celtics uh, beat the Phoenix Suns. That humors me because the Phoenix Suns have not been to a Finals in uh, many ages. And that is sports for 1976. So, I think both my parents lived in Lincoln, and um, I'm not sure if they were dating yet. They were probably both in high school. And uh, do you know what your your parents graduated? Well, my mom was 18 when she had me, so you're gonna think 1979. So my dad might have just graduated. I think my parents, more my dad, graduated in '73. They always tell me that I I was not an accident, and I never believe it. 
But I think my parents had just met and were getting together at this point. They get they got married in 78. And I don't think no, excuse me. They got married in 77. Because they had Lisa, my sister, in 78. And so at this point they must have been dating, f- fooling around, doing their thing. I have, I don't know. I don't talk to them. <laughs> no, yeah, don't don't ask man. She doesn't want to talk about it. <laughs> it's the last thing she wants to revisit. Eric? Yeah, well, my my uh well, funny enough. 1976 was the year my wife was born, so Heather was born this year. My parents were both living in L.A. My mom was from L.A., the Central Valley, but he had he went out to L.A., with, tried to be a teacher, didn't work out, um, and so he was just bumming around, listening to music, enjoying the beach life, um, basically like a character in, a, in Inherent Vice, and, uh, and then he, uh, <laughs> and then at this point, this is amazing, he somehow BS'd his way into a job instructing people, hang gliding instructors in the, like, the L.A. Hills. Like, it, like he was instructing people how to hang glide, and he'd never done it before in his life. And he just told him he had a degree in physical education. The guy gave him a hang glider, and he taught himself every night, and then would go and then teach people the next day. And, like, one day he crashed into a mountain, and just, like, lost teeth showed up, bloody and banged up, and they asked him what happened. He said he got in a fight. You should see the other guy kind of thing. He didn't want to tell him he crashed the hang glider. <laughs> Nobody died, but uh, my parents may have been together at this point. Um, it was this was this was the the high flying seventies, freewheeling, literally high flying for uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah for Jeff there. <laughs> yeah. So that's very exciting for all our listeners, I'm sure. So, <laughs> what was going on with our hero during this this time, 1976, the Thin White Duke era? He was in L.A. as well. Not he having was, fun in L.A. No, is what it turned out. He was out not. Be. He he was well. He 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 was treated like a king when he got there. Did young Americans had his band together and was kind of creating this persona. He's coming him. out of his. He called it his plastic soul. Right with young Americans, right. plastic soul, and he's very popular right now. I mean, he you know, he's on for God's sakes, uh, Soul Train. Uh, right, he's very oh, yeah. drunk on Soul Train, and. Uh, yeah, but he, yeah, he, his cocaine habit was reaching critical mass at this point. Through the roof and through his nose. Right. Where, I mean, if you watch, like, the Cracked Actor uh, documentary, which we're not covering tonight, but it was filmed around this time, he was living off a diet of peppers, bell peppers, and milk, and look, he looked like a ghost. He looked like he, he was... What's he was with the away. bell peppers? Why, why bell peppers? Do we ever get to the bottom of that? I have no idea. I can Yeesh. only imagine milk because he probably wasn't eating very much and it was some sort of sustenance. He needed some calcium. Keep, barely keep him alive. Maybe the bell peppers were like, well, I'm not, I'm not consuming much right now. So I had the milk for some uh, vitamins. Right. And then since I'm not getting really, I'm tasting nothing, I might as well just, just eat peppers and get an explosion of taste in my mouth. You know? <laughs> right. Oh, my God. Or maybe it was like, you know, in my youth a couple of times I, I did those, uh, those fasts uh, with the cayenne pepper cleanse. Ah. And uh, maybe it was something like that. Maybe mm. he was some kind of mental and physical yeah. fast. Right. All right. Right. Yeah. You, I mean, uh, not to go on a tangent here, but uh, Jimmy Kimmel, I recently listened to an episode of Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. Good podcast. Um, and he had Jimmy Kimmel on. Apparently there was this uh, rumor around that Jimmy Kimmel only ate um, five out of the seven days of the week. And uh, he lost a whole lot of weight. So and that came to be true. Mondays and Thursdays, he would not eat a single thing. That well, sounds like hell. And he dropped so much weight, he said. People were like, what are you doing? He was like, I'm just, I don't eat two days of the week. 
every other day, eight just normal. But uh, yeah, apparently that works. I guess well. it works, but it sounds miserable. Yeah. yeah. It also sounds like something that would back. Like I mean, eventually you got to eat every day of the week again, and then it's not sustainable. Yeah. yeah, it's not sustainable. Yeah. Like as soon as he started exercising, he was like, "I fuck that, I can't do that. I'm right. gonna die." So <laughs> there are so many rumors about what was going on with him, where he became kind of a recluse in his. He wasn't. He was living in a mansion, but it was like he got a wing. Like he was living in somebody else's mansion. They gave him like the wing, and he was. There's, you know, he was doing magic rituals. He was burning black candles. He's claim, claiming that his semen was stolen by witches, <laughs> receiving secret messages from the Rolling Stones, and basically uh, some sort of unspoken grudge with Jimmy Page. Which was, is interesting yeah. because Jimmy Page also is an Aleister Crowley guy who he was really into at this time. So I understand, and, like, he was really into numerology at this point of his mm. career. All the shit that Marilyn Manson pretended he was into years yeah. later, David Billy was really into at this time, I think. Yeah. yeah. And it wasn't just, yeah, it was a lot of, I mean, uh, when we get to the title track, I'll kind of list some of the religions and, and pseudo-religions and, and spiritual movements that he references. It's a lot. And he yeah, we'll get into it. Uh, we'll talk more about the Thin White Duke, what inspired that, and what Eric just referred to when we talk about the title track yeah. over those lyrics. Yeah. But to paint a picture, yeah, our hero right now, He's all he, he was. He was a user prior to this, and the using got even worse. He's in L.A., and it doesn't sound like he's surrounded by a lot of friends. You know, no, yeah. Um, I think you know. I don't know what kind of partying was going on, but uh, it almost seems like he was part of a party scene, but incredibly reclusive at the same time and annoyed by it. Right. And uh, didn't yeah? It didn't I seem guess like he had close connections. Going and doing Man to Earth, he said was only, it was kind of like a respite from this. Mm-hmm. But I just took it down a couple notches. So, man who fell to earth. I found my thrill on Blueberry Hill. On Blueberry Hill. When I so who's it directed by it was directed by a gentleman by the name of nicholas rogue i mm-hmm. believe that's how you pronounce his last mm-hmm. name he, just, he actually he died recently right? yeah, he died recently yeah um and when i was have you guys at, ever seen any of his other movies the witches uh, oh he yeah that one. he did that one yeah I, i'm gonna look him up right now but that, that that's, that's the, a, that's exactly because yeah. i was a big Roald dal fan uh, yeah. when i was a kid growing up and i remember watching the witches um and uh, he's done some other stuff. I was told that it, uh, the one before this that got him the job was called Don't Look Now. And uh, okay. it starred Donald Sutherland. And apparently it just has really, a really intense movie. Okay. Oh. Um, but uh, so this movie starts with uh, looks like a crash landing out in the old mountain Sorry, area. Sorry, he did Bad Timing. Have you guys seen Bad Timing with Art Gun- Garfunkel? No. Well, and I was this precluding Man Who Fell to Earth? It came. It was 80, 1980. Okay, because yeah, he became fascinated with working with yeah. uh, rock stars. He did. He yeah. did. Um, let me just uh, just say in uh, in bad timing. Um, if you ever want to see a classic folk artist c- commit necrophilia, enjoy <laughs> that movie. That movie's nuts. Oh, that's Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, you see David Bowie kind of shuffling around. Uh, it's very disjointed and convoluted. You don't really. The thing about this movie that's very interesting 
is there's never any indication about the passage of time. You have to pick up the clues, and it's usually by wigs and hair colors right. uh, from other right. yeah. ancillary characters outside of David Bowie. Yeah. And yes, David Bowie plays an alien from probably Mars or some other, like, and never actually says what planet that he's from. Nebulon. Something ridiculous. Like, it's, uh, if you've seen Seti the very, Alpha 5. Exactly. If you've seen the very first Star Trek movie, Star Trek, the motion picture, it's like uh, the bald lady that comes, V'ger. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he comes from that planet. This but, is not nearly as slow as Star Trek motion picture. No, okay. <laughs> but he, he shows up looking like the Thin White Duke. Like, this, yep. his look in this movie he would take on. In fact, he uses stills from this movie as his album artwork for like a couple of the albums uh, station to station and low both yep. are the yeah. two yep. i even saw that scene where he's wearing the hoodie oh and yeah i was like that's low you know, what's, yeah. in, what's yeah. interesting about right now is that if you take young americans this mo- this movie uh, station to station and then low they all kind of tie together in a weird uh, right way web one leading to the next so um his character uh what's it's thomas newton thomas newton yep yeah Obviously, because Newton was the guy that discovered gravity. Exactly. Very. And he failed Earth. It's, it's very, I, right I, on the money. I, I tell you. So. Um, Deep. He becomes this uh, very rich entrepreneur. Uh, he's got patents because obviously he's got really uh, super intelligence when it comes to technology and communication. Because he's an alien. And uh, no one knows that his true secret that he's an alien um, he's being kind of is he being kind of pursued by Rip Torn, who's like uh, Rip, a scientist. E- exactly. So then you've got this other kind of B plot going on where Rip Torn um, uh, is this college professor that is uh, <laughs> banging his students. Banging his students. Yeah, there's that line where the, the where this girl's like playing with his his dick, and she's like, "This doesn't look anything like my father's." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she's holding like a cigarette and like I was trying to think about the logistics of of that scene like um you know it's just not something that you would see in today's day and age. And yes, spoiler alert, you do see David Bowie's dick later in the film right. towards the end. I think you see Rip's torn too. Oh, that's what I just said. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah oh yeah. It. She's so holding his hand. I think Rip Torn would fall in our bad boys of our favorite, you know, our favorite bad boys list as far as bad boy actors go. He's, like he's he, wonderful. He's, he's so definitely good. in the Nick Nolte yeah. uh, club. Yeah. yeah, we've I think we've gone on about our love for Rip Torn from the Larry Sanders show in this right. podcast yeah, before. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Which was decades later, but that voice is unmistakable. Yeah. So over time, he has uh, David Bowie's character, Thomas Newton. He has this kind of go-between who's really running all of the affairs. Like his attorney. His attorney, exactly, who kind of looks like... Oliver um, Farnsworth. And Farnsworth, uh, named after Philo Farnsworth, the guy that invented television, which obviously uh, David Bowie's character gets very obsessed with alcohol um, and TV. Yeah. Um, so there's a great shot where he's like surrounded by like f- 15 TV. Exactly. Yeah. Um, now Farnsworth kind of looks like the guy from Blade Runner. I was just yeah. going to say that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. One of you guys posted something like, on the Facebook. That's me. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, that's, yeah, he's uh, like what's the old, his fucking the old face? Guy that, maybe it's him. I don't know. I'm not gonna it's not the same actor, but just the big Buck Henry is the actor. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, I'm giving you the Reader's Digest version. Listeners out there, just check it out. It is available, I think, on this streaming app called mm-hmm. Tubi. Yeah, it's weird. It's on this thing for free called Tubi right now. But also right now, it's on the uh, Criterion streaming. It yeah. Just, like just right dropped now. this week. Yeah, And that also includes a commentary that's the director and David Bowie. Ooh. 
So David Bowie, he's playing this role extremely in one note, isolated, disengaged from everything around him. Um, and, and either he was, he does a good job at it, but also it either started informing his life or he was just acting like he wasn't his life. Exactly. Just yeah. apathetic to everything around him. But there was one individual, one character played by, I think, Candy Clark. Yeah. Who was extremely infatuated with him, really trying to bring out the humanity in him. And um, once it becomes apparent that he's going to be found out that he's actually an alien, Rip Torn's character basically says, I know that you're not a human being. Yeah. Um. And how he gets there, you know, you dear listeners is going to have to find that out for yourself. Yeah, we, we, we've told you enough. But um, but uh, the, that one scene when he comes out of the bathroom in his real true form. Yes. Yeah. I had to. I laughed out loud. Like, <laughs> he, he, he looks like Anakin Skywalker. <laughs> he looks like um, a cross between Voldemort and. Uh, oh, he rolled them <laughs> snake eyes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's yeah. a. I. Uh, uh, what you get? What you guys? What do you guys think of the movie? Uh, I think it's. I think it's pretty great. It's not. It's not. Um, it's. It's fine. Yeah. I. Yeah. I wouldn't say great. I think great's a hard I word think, for it. I think it is a stylistic. Uh, I think it's important from a stylistic perspective. I think every shot. It looks like a painting. I think. It. it I think it's beautiful. I think. Um, what it wants. What it wants to say about. Uh, I don't know, maybe the kind of personality that it takes to uh, maneuver the science and business world and and then what it does, what it does to you. I don't know. Maybe that's what they're getting at. I don't know. It's not great, but it is beautiful. And I think it deserves its place in the uh, art house pantheon. Yeah, especially for when it dropped, uh, when it came out. Um, But um if you're a David Bowie fan, you should definitely watch it because because his Thin White Duke um, was that. I mean, like he wanted to take that idea of somebody that was aloof, somebody that was separate and distant, and would just go from town to town and and uh, you know ravage the women and, and men and uh, and but not look like they're having any joy. In no, doing no, it. no, no, no. Just yeah, exactly. I mean, I I didn't hate the film uh, at times. You know. I do agree there are some shots where it, it is really awesome. I mean, obviously, the cover of Station to Station is uh, a still photograph from him entering into his spaceship that he was creating to go back home. And then the low shot with him right. standing at the dock with that blue light. I like that really one a lot. Cool. There's some good yeah. shots of just him sitting yeah. there. Yeah. Some of the earlier shots, they kind of tip you off that he has a fascination with water early. Yeah. He's like drinking out of like a canal and stuff. Right. And just sitting there. It's framed very well. They remade this movie in 1987. And apparently, it was made for TV, and apparently, it was shit. But uh, sorry to cut you off. I'm no, just, I'm just saying. Who like, was in that? <laughs> I, I, I have no idea. It's on in IMDb. Yeah. But I think Donovan. The, the themes of the film are pretty good. I think the execution on the narrative it could have been tightened up a little bit. Yeah, but, absolutely. There's, um, yeah, there's two. There's two themes that one that if someone were to come to Earth, our vices would probably be like all the shit that we put ourselves through would probably affect somebody that came here. Right. You know, getting addicted to everything that we put in front of us. And then also there's um there's a line where someone's discussing with him, Mr. Knowing he's an alien. And they're like, hey, man, are you any hard feelings about what we're going through right now? And he says, no, if you came to my planet, we'd probably do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. He, he allowed himself to be corrupted, but it wasn't like we were. A, we did it to him. He did it to himself. 
That last scene, I believe, uh, when David Bowie's wearing that uh, that hat, Mm -hmm. I was reading uh, some of the trivia on uh, IMDb. Apparently, David Bowie either, I think, was sick, was legitimately sick. I don't think he was, like, drugged out Mm -hmm. where they were like, you can't be on camera. That was actually Candy Clark wearing the hat um, on some of those uh, blocking shots. So when you don't see his face... Um, that's actually Candy Ugh. Clark dressed up as David Bowie. I think because she's he's sitting there with I think Rip Torn, right? It's, not, very, it's another character. It's another have. character at the end. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, he's emancipated enough to where he can have the frame of a smaller person, right? And apparently the Emaci- clothing emaciated. designer emancipated. Yes, freedom. Yeah. freedom. Yes. <laughs> the clothing <laughs> designer. Yeah, you know I'm not usually man. Katie corrects a lot. No, so that's, <laughs> But yeah, um, apparently they had he had to wear boys' clothes, not men's clothes, because of how thin he was, and because of that nutritious diet that he was subsisting right. himself off. I think he did a good job in it as for uh, a novice actor. He, he said that he he uh, this is a quote directly from him that I just threw my real self into that movie as I was at the time. It was the first thing I'd ever done. I was virtually ignorant of the established procedure of making a movie. So I was going on a lot of instinct, and my instinct was pretty dissipated. I just learned the lines for that day and did them the way I was feeling. It wasn't that far off from how I was really feeling. I actually was feeling as alienated as that character was. It was a pretty natural performance. A good exhibition of somebody literally falling apart in front of you. I was totally insecure with about 10 grams of cocaine a day in me. I stoned out of my mind from beginning to end. And if that's all true... I think he still did a pretty good job. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, there, I th- there, there's those shots of him examining water that I think are great for something as boring as examining water. Sure, you know, he, he's got a presence in it, and and you know, all of his film appearances, you know, he does give it his all. He likes to play a character, and just like in our bonus episode, you know, talking about you know Tom Waits being a good actor, when character is key for you as a songwriter, you know, it, it's a natural progression. But yeah, if I was to like rate the film, I'd probably give it a two out of five. Um, I think that had really big ideas. Um, the cinematography was very well done. I didn't expect anything more out of David Bowie's performance because that's exactly what they were going for. I just, uh, it just, uh, the, the movie felt flat. Candy Clark, uh, I didn't feel really, you know, wasn't in, in there for her acting. I mean, no offense or anything like that. Um, Rip. Torn. I mean, he's always given you that same character. You know, the the guy that uh, blustery suffers no fools. Exactly. Um, yep. Yeah. 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 But he's he's great. I think two out of five is fair. I think I think for what it does to telling a non chronological story for when it came out, I think yeah. it deserves a respect. And some of those shots and and color schemes and and costuming, um, the style of it, I think is is fantastic. But yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't have enough going on to, to be worth much more than that but yeah yeah the parts are more than the sum of this yeah. movie there's yeah. some cool stuff in yeah. it some cool shots in it he was going to do the music but it didn't work out because of contracts so you got the guy from the mamas and the papas exactly the mamas <laughs> oh and the that's papas. right john phillips right yeah. Yeah. yeah john phillips did the music for it yeah but some, apparently some, they used some of the work that he was doing on some of his berlin yes exactly yeah, yeah sorry no some of that stuff got used later and uh, i think the biggest um aspect of this cultural imprint is that for a moment he was dating uh, the costume designer um, named Ola Hudson, who was the mother of a young man named Saul Hudson, a.k.a. Slash. And so David Bowie used to babysit Slash for a while, and uh, that warms my heart. Yeah. They didn't last long, his mom and David Bowie. Right, right. 
That's great. That is yeah. pretty cool. So he yeah, comes I suge- back. I suggest, I suggest checking it out, yeah. but yeah. yeah, you'll need to buy it. Before we get to our next segment, a little bit of Nine Inch News came up while we were in the lab recording this one. If you're anywhere on the internet or on Netflix, I'm sure you've heard of Black Mirror, the sci-fi dystopia show. Miley Cyrus was in the most recent episode called Rachel, Jack, and Ashley 2. And in it, she did some uh, pop reworkings of Nine Inch Nail songs. Specifically, Head Like a Hole and Right Where It Belongs. And uh, the proper version of Head Like a Hole is going to be released soon. Uh, Nine Inch Nails actually got in on this. They gave it their blessing. And they they released a collaborative t-shirt that uh, reads Black Mirror, Nine Inch Nails in the front. And on the back it says, Head Like a Hole, I'm on a Roll, Riding So High, Achieving My Goals. So he comes back from making this movie to, to L.A., which it's funny. If There's an interview with Cameron Crowe at the time where he, he's driving Cameron Crowe around his neighborhood and just like, look at L.A., I love it. It's uh, Every corner is a, is a museum or something like that. And then cut to many years later, he's like, L.A. can just fall into the fucking molten core for all yeah, I care. No, he, <laughs> he hated L.A. for what it... Right. Yeah, I mean, he's self-aware enough to know that he was his own problem, but right. L.A. Yeah. didn't help. No. So he gets back, and it's it's time to work on a new album, and he's kind of developing this character. So we talked about kind of how his character in Manifold to Earth kind of informed the Thin White Duke. He described it as a mad aristocrat or an amoral zombie, just bouncing around a <laughs> an emotionless Aryan Superman, kind of a nasty character. It, it was a, probably his darkest his darkest self, right? He had some other influences at the time that were kind of building into where he wanted to go with his music. He was getting into Krautrock. Uh, Craftworks Audubon, or do you say new? Is that how you say it? Yeah, it's just a new. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, just German uh, electronic bands that were that were coming out at that time. His band was Holdovers from the last album. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Carlos Alomar, um, Earl Slick. Um, I I believe most of those, uh, that band was from the Young Americans era. Yep. Right. And when he started working on this, it was intended to be called The Return of the Thin White Duke, and it was supposed to be... He was hoping a lot of this was going to be soundtrack work for The Man Who Fell to Earth. Yeah. Which didn't end up happening. I mean, I can't picture any of this music really fitting in, like, a glove. Maybe some elements of um, Station to Station. Right. um, But it doesn't seem sci-fi enough moody. That it's really, not moody enough exactly yeah. Yeah. now some of the stuff off low yeah no doubt yeah no doubt uh yeah so he's so he goes to the studio to record uh his good buddy tony viscani uh had for three years they hadn't worked together but viscani showed back up to do young americans to do diamond dogs to do the live album but he had other stuff he was working on um, so he could not do, he could not produce this one. So this one was co-produced by Harry Maslin, who I believe was like a, uh, did some of the, uh, auxiliary instruments. Uh, he was a studio music musician. Yeah. Harry Maslin also did the 2010, 
it's called a remix, but it's really just a remastering of the album. I listened to that one. I thought that one had a warmer sound than the other version that I had, but yeah, I could see that. There's the complicated one, the one... Comp- competing versions, so we couldn't really decide what we were all listening to. But I, that was the one that was my the one that I listened to the most. The one I stuck with was the 2016 remastering. Do you know who did that one by chance? I don't know who did yeah. it, but it had a really good low end. The rhythm section just really popped. Right. Yeah. I, I couldn't really, I don't have a discerning year on some of these things. I, I did feel that the, maybe the 2016 was a little more punchy, um, but that Harry Maslin uh, remaster remix was, uh, I feel that um, it wasn't, things were brought up in the mix a little bit. Like I, I could hear more of the nuance that yeah. uh, you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, he was doing some stuff with his voice that I never noticed before. Um and some just like noises or instrumentation that was kind of muddled before, I could definitely hear it. So, if you can find it, check it out. It's on the um, the box set called. So, um, who at, can it be now? Who am I now? Yeah, who am I now? Yeah. So as as we as we always reference for all the versions and extraneous material, these box sets have been a goldmine. So, who am I now? Is the one that collected uh, Young Americans and and this and, and maybe Diamond Dogs as well. But yeah, yeah, I think that. The, the the version I like with the uh, the rhythm section really in the front is really important because uh, during this time, Carlos Alomar started showing up around uh, Young Americans, I think. But then uh, Dennis, Davis, Dennis Davis and George Murray joined the band for this. Yeah. And they're the band for all the albums up to Scary Monsters. And so you got Carlos Alomar, Dennis Davis, and George Murray having to sense the continuity for all those albums and the rhythm sections and all this stuff is just amazing. Yeah. And I think having it brought to the front and that remaster I like is a uh, good. Yeah. But, um, cause he was still, yeah, he was coming a- off plastic soul. So, so like there was a smoothness to the music, um, you know, it was the disco era. So he was, but he, but he was also into kraut rock. So he was definitely experimenting with a funkiness that was in popular music, but trying something new with it. But before we get into deeper critical analysis, let's see what our research assistant has to say. I did like the album. I'd give it five bolts, and my favorite song is Golden Years on that. Anything else you got to say about that album? It is one of the six albums that I'd put on my five bolts. I'm not going to say the other five yet. Oh, okay. So, a perfect Bowie album. Uh, you're nodding your head. Good. The people who are listening to podcasts can't yes. hear you nodding your head. Yes. Uh, okay. Can you, can you delete that part? No, I'm not going to delete it. <laughs> and now, before we get into even more critical analysis, let's take a look at what happened back in those days when they were planning the recording of this album. Now, as always, we don't know exactly what was said, but our research proves that something of this nature definitely was said. Not a good idea when you're recording hits. Hold on, hold on. Oh my goodness, hold on. I need to take this call. Hey, uh, ground controller Major Tutankhamen. I came, I swing by the offices, studio the other day, your manager's there. He's asking me, what the, what's this? What's this uh, $5,000 in milk just in one week? That's a lot of milk. I just needed more calcium. And the peppers, I, you know, we had those discussions many years ago. Don't even get me started on the peppers, off on ghoul, unless you're opening a fajitas franchise. I don't want to hear about it. Why not just have red and green 
options to eat. And why not just make them both peppers? Every day is more efficient, and that allows me to work on my art. It might be the peppers, it might be the milk, it might be something else white that's uh, making you a little distant, a little cold and hollow. Doesn't mean that I shouldn't have spread my wings. I quite like the work I did with Mr. Rogue. Second of all, you know I love the man who fell to earth. I was there at the, uh, I was there at the premiere night. I'm a big supporter. Hold on, okay. So you don't have time to work on this record. We've been... Yeah, I know you do have a new album come out, and yes, I have a prior commitment because I agreed to play the pan flute uh, when the fairies come out in the upcoming Hobbit cartoon that I can't back out of at this point. I already signed the papers. Without me, I, I feel my absence like a hollow cave. Carlos is on fire. Yes, you remember Carlos. We worked together. Carlos is on fire right now, and he has introduced me to some other men that I think maybe you should get over here and meet. Whatever you're doing with uh, Art Garfunkel. That's Glenn Yarborough. He's the voice of the balladeer in this Hobbit cartoon. Let me tell you, he does a mean top bombadil. I can't wait, but I gotta get to Scotland. Listen, to Yes, Tony. But hey, when you're done with that and you realize you miss your old pal Tony, you want to do collaborate again, you know I'll be there for you. Let me, let me finish this up, and then I need to get out of here. Uh, do, you still, do you still have those friends over in Europe? Goddamn right I do. And you know what? There's a flat in Berlin with your name on it. You need to get out of L.A., man. Listen, go somewhere where the culture speaks to you a little better than it does in the City of Angels. We'll take you up on that. Tony, stay safe, and I will see you across the pond, but not that pond. The other pop. God damn it, take care of yourself, Dave. I want you alive so you and I can at least have one more adventure together. Yes, I understand, Tony. Listen, I will meet you first. We will travel together. I know how you are. We'll go to that first station in London, meet there, and then, yes, exactly, we always transfer in Prague at the other station. We go from station to station. That's a good title right there. You it's got safe. yourself up. God damn it, I missed my plane. Ah, shit. Carlos, how does station to station sound to you? drug consumption goes he wasn't alone the whole band try to get a straight story on how this album was made none of them can do it they they all yeah. said like 
It was just cocaine nonstop. In the he claims he doesn't remember it. Yeah. Did you and mention Earl Slick on this one? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Earl, yeah, Slick, Earl yeah. Slick is the lead guitar yeah. on a lot of this stuff. Yeah. yeah, but he doesn't. Earl Slick comes and goes for the next few albums, but Carlos Alomar is always there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, any live footage you watch, also, it's, it's those those three guys are in it. Yeah. Yeah. And they're 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 just tight. George Murray was the bassist. Yes, uh, I just I just said that. Oh, you did. Okay. So and yeah. then yeah, Dennis yeah. Davis okay. drums. Yeah, you did it. Thank you. Um. In the yep. live band, it had Tony Kay, who's on keyboards, and I believe Tony Kay was a founding member of... He directed the movie American History X. I know, I know exactly. <laughs> um, continue, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll be right with you, but... Uh, yeah, so that's kind of the... Those are the pieces for recording the album. I think, are we ready to hear the first track? Not quite yet. On the topic of reception here in the Jay Sherman Roundup, this album was very appreciated upon release. It hit number three on the Billboard top charts, and that became the highest Bowie-rated album until 2013's The Next Day, which baffles me because The Next Day is just kind of there. I, I, would not, I would not say that the two are on a, a level with each other. Enemy called it one of the most significant albums of the last five years, and they named it uh, the second greatest album of 1976. Uh, Rolling Stone applauded the album's rockier moments, but discerned a move away from the genre, finding it that the thoughtfully professional effort of a style-conscious artist whose ability to write and perform demanding rock and roll exists comfortably alongside his fascination for diverse forms. While there's little doubt about his skill, one wonders how long he'll continue wrestling with rock at all. And, you know, after Young Americans... And then this, you could have thought he was going to go completely soul, but he, he headed into the Berlin Trilogy, where things got a bit more icy. And then we all know that Mr. Bowie came back to rock and roll eventually. Circus Magazine had something interesting to say. And they said that Station to Station offers cryptic, expressionalistic glimpse that let us feel the contours and palpitations of the ma- maskier soul, but never fully reveal his face. The review also found various allusions to earlier efforts, such as the density of the man who sold the world, feel of Hunky Dory, the dissonance and angst of Aladdin Sane, the compelling percussion of Young Americans, and the youthful mysticism of Wild-Eyed Boy from Free Cloud. Now, while I wouldn't go and say that it's the greatest hits of his earlier works, I definitely do agree that there's bits and pieces that make a, a great whole here. And yes, I pulled that last quote directly from Wikipedia. Uh, in more contemporary reviews, looking back, which the entire internet did when David Bowie died, I do want to pull this quote from uh, Pitchfork, which I think sums things up nicely. When rock stars do too much cocaine, they tend to do ridiculous things, like drive cars into motel swimming pools or hire hitmen to snuff out their bassist or make Be Here Now. David Bowie, on the other hand, produced Station to Station, an album he allegedly doesn't remember making, but which ironically stands at his most immaculately constructed album and the most important tactical transition in a career built upon aesthetic reinvention. As far as feedback from our listeners and our social networks, everyone was ecstatic when we announced we were recording this episode next. Station to Station is beloved by the entire fan base, it seems. Uh, Two quotes in particular I'd like to pull from our social networks is uh, super user Michael Konomos, who always has a lot of things to say, and I like it when he says them. I really connected to this album a couple years ago in a very personal way. 
There is all the analysis that you can do about Crowley. You can focus on the cocaine and milk and peppers and all those well-told stories about those Bowie years. But for me, what makes this album special is its vulnerability. I believe there is a unifying emotional thread running through every song, and that is what makes it such a lasting and respecting album. This album is about feeling isolated and the longing for connection. The lyrics and the way that he sings each song are very affecting. It emotes. It grabs our hearts. Underneath it all is pain. Now, I want you to think about that. As uh, it, it continues to go on, by the way. If you want to seek it out, there's a Facebook comment on a Bowie uh, post for the Wild is the Wind single on the Facebook. But, uh, think, but think about what Michael just said there, and now listen to what Replica Reed posted on his Instagram and tagged us in. I was too young to appreciate this when I first heard it. Must have been around 16, which for him would be 2005. What a young, young man. And all about the Ziggy Diamond Dog eras. I think if I had waited a bit, it would have helped. Even when the big deluxe edition arrived, I had stayed with just the singles, Golden Years, and TVC 1-5. In my mid-20s, I went back to the album. It was something of a darker experience for me. Of course, there were moments in the album which were soft and sincere. This album struck a chord with me. It was the way he sang and the lyrics which he described longing, isolation, anxiety, and other themes. And yes, even the TV that ate his girlfriend. This album is a strange, outlandish, cold, rhythmic, sonic journey into a mind full of delusions and angst. It is something I revisit time and time again. So you see, between the two of them, they both touched on the, uh, the isolation and how you could feel that he's uh, trying to reach out. And I think that the album conveys that very well. Thank you for your feedback. That clip you hear in the background is not David Bowie. That's Scott Weiland from Stone Temple Pilots. Off his album 12 Bar Blues, the song Barbarella. It was released in 1998, and the reason I'm bringing it up is because it might have actually been my first introduction to The Man Who Fell to Earth. The music video is a direct homage to the movie. In it, Scott Weiland is an emancipated space alien-looking dude who crash lands in Las Vegas and slips and slides. Literally, he, he slides down mount, uh, buildings around town, and it shows him in a room singing to himself, Looking forlorn. It's not a terrible song. If I were to make a a greatest hits of Stone Temple Pilots related music, it would be on there. And also that greatest hits package would probably have about seven songs tops. Uh, definitely Interstate Love Song would be on there because that song is a stone cold classic. He was a founding member of Yes, yeah. so, yeah. He was in L.A., took a break to make a movie, came back to L.A. All these guys are fucked up on drugs. They're staying up all night and probably keeping the, you know, blacking the windows out with markers. And um, somehow amidst all this, so they made uh, an album that's nearly flawless. So I don't know how that happens. And that character that we, well, that character, that uh, woman in David Bowie's life that we talked about in our last episode, Coco Schwab, she was absolutely around this time frame, really trying to help David Bowie get it together. Survive. In, yeah. In Live. order to, you know, do this, this record and many more to come. This was his nader, if you will. Yeah. After this, he goes to Europe. 
But not as creative, Nader, because that was the last episode that we talked about. No. Um, as we talk about. That's weird. We didn't, the last episode wasn't ours. What are you talking about? Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> All yeah, right. Debatable. Yeah. So if you want to get started, let's go ahead and get to the first track. Um, that first track is the self-titled track, Station to Station. We'll let's talk hear- to you listeners in 12 minutes. <laughs> Yeah, you just got done hanging out with Keith Moon and working on Keith Moon's solo record for some stuff that was never released. And then, uh, you know, Young Americans comes out and uh, he goes to L.A. He's working with Alomar, Slick, Davis, and uh, Murray, Murray, who who they brought in for the first time. And that's, as we talked about, the band that'll be around all scary monsters. Also, you got the... Ray Britton on the keyboards from Bruce Springsteen, the E Street Band. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. It's, all, it's all very important stuff. And so they sit down and they start writing these songs together. Six fantastic songs. The first of which, the track starts with a train coming into town. It does, yeah. Um, and and Harry I think Maslin it, is responsible for those uh, samples, which I thought was pretty, it probably at the time was pretty unique. It's interesting because the, the train coming in, it heralds that the European canon is here. But... It also, the album's called Station to Station. And I don't know if you want to be that literal about a train station. But this album definitely sounds like it's, hey, uh, our last stop was Young Americans, and we're on our way to Low. But in the meantime, we're on this train. Make sense? There are so many ways to interpret Station to Station. Obviously, the song goes into the Stations of the Cross, which we'll get to. But his character, Thin White Duke, like part of the persona that he wanted was he's going from town to town, station to station. Like showing up, like maybe corrupting it, not giving a shit, getting back on the train and doing it, doing it one more time and another time and another time. So there's a lot of ways to interpret that of where he wanted to go with that character, that persona. Um, and yeah, and then the, then the religious connection, uh, which we'll get to in a minute. The song starts with the music basically being the train. Initially, you hear the train sounds and then you hear the piano, kunk, 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 and then you hear the bass and the drums kick in. And um, and all of them are crystal clear in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. the piano is a very strong instrument on this album. Yep. Um, and then that rhythm section, when the when that the the kick drums kick in this album, you can feel them. And when 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 the bass creeps in, like it's a thumping. Oh yeah. Bass line. Yeah. And they're really they're there. They announce themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. And it just kind of it it starts up. And, and this is a long song. This is like an eleven minute song. So this intro you know, basically goes for four minutes of just slowly building, adding, adding a little bit more drive, getting that tempo up. And then at some point we get one of those transitions that we talk about, those like wet transitions where it's, it's kind of a swirling sound and then it kicks into a more standard rock 
rock thing that that is the tempo is so fast he can barely keep up with with it or sometimes he goes even faster than the beat similar to the whole train coming to the station you know uh in my mind i get an imagery of like an assembly line in a factory things being put together there's it sounds like gears being spun and ratchets being tightened there's like a rhythmic tone like feel to like the instrumentation the tiktok guitar like tick 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 announcing the coming of something and uh, it's like a countdown of some sort uh the little plucking that's and then of course once it really has that kind of, uh the drum beat and then it really starts to take off um i i completely agree with you like european stuff and a lot of craft work you know mm-hmm. and and the the you know the the, the sound of a train is is definitely right at home with what he was listening to and then this, this whole album, the glimpses of the minimalistic and European stuff will do on low, but then behind them has all of the, the soulfulness of young Americans, and they, they're blended so well together. And it all starts out in this track. I think it's three distinct sections. Right. You've got that, that, that train s- section where it sounds like the band's tuning up. Yep. And they're getting ready. Yep. And then you have the movement where... The thin white duke basically introduces himself right. to what you're doing. It's and, like slow funk. Yeah, yeah. and you yeah. kind of you know you talk about going state. You talk about going station to station, and then it kicks into overdrive with the last five minutes of the song, mm-hmm. where like if you can't not dance to that section where it kicks into overdrive, you're uh, you can't hear music. Right. You know? that, can't help but 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 shake 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 my leg at the uh you know the the wonderful wonderful second half that you so um, picking into like what this song's about i think yeah i think the way you're you kind of explain it is is pretty close i think it starts with a lot of feeling lost and looking for answers in uh religion and spiritualism and then uh when it when it kicks into high gear the european canon is here which is uh, he was flirting with fascism a little bit during this era. I'm not saying he was a proponent for it, but it was part of his character. His character didn't give a shit about about anybody. It was style first. It was conformity. And then it was basically, um, you know, like I said before, going from town to town, corrupting it and moving on. Um, and so much so where like people think like they saw him do a, um, a sing high, at, uh, at, which is all speculation. Um at one time in an interview saying that uh, that the UK should have a fascist leader, um, which he later said was 
uh, blamed on the cocaine. Yeah, he later on he said he either blamed it on the cocaine or said it was all, hey man, it was art, okay? It was playing right. a role. Right, right, right. Which, you know, you know Leibach has done, and uh, I I remember there's a hilarious, not it's not hilarious, it's actually terrifying. There's a terrifying clip of Eric Clapton uh, basically telling uh, that all the blacks should go back to Africa. Yeah, well, uh, Eric Clapton's the, an idiot. And he blamed it also on the cocaine, but... Um, In the case of David <laughs> Bowie, I think it was just, he, he was a little was on drugs. And also, I think he was trying to really just, like, he was living his art right. with this uh, yeah, this character, this cold yeah. character yeah, who exactly. also would step on people's throats right. without caring, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's such an art, like it's so odd to be. He's kind of a Lothario at the same time, but he does not care about human connection at all. No, right. Um, it's more of the conquest. That's what that. That's what the Lothario is. Yeah. So like like breaking down the lyrics, you know, it starts off with uh, from where dreams are woven, bending sound, dredging the ocean, lost in my circle, and that could be looked at as a couple different ways. I mean, people said he had circles of candles around, so that's more like ritualistic circle or just social circle. Lost in a circle, like like you were saying, he was a socialite but didn't feel at home and still felt lost. Here I am, flashing no color. So there was um there was a meditation system uh, that that basically said like you, it's like an aura. Right. Flashing no color means you didn't have an aura, which shows that he's cold. So that that uh, golden dawn tatva, I believe, was the medita- meditation system that 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 used color as your aura. Um, at, at one point, he says, uh, here we are, a magical movement from Kether to Malkuth. And that's where we get the, uh, the Crowley references. Uh, tree of Life, that, 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 the, that is a reference to the Tree of Life painting by Crowley. Steve, what do you, do you have anything to say about Crowley? Not really. I like. I always like the idea of Crowley more than I've ever reading Aleister Crowley. No, no, yeah. I mean, it, shit. Uh, as I as I stated, I'm a Dio man before an Ozzy man, but Ozzy's song "Mr. Crowley" is a great song. Right, right. That's about as much as I'm going to say about <laughs> Aleister Crowley. <laughs> But uh, I know that Jimmy Page and David Bowie both were fans. Right. So um, When he says, Return of the Thin White Duke throwing darts in lover's eyes, apparently Crowley, like, I don't know if he was at a park or a public place, but he threw darts at, like, people that were walking, holding hands together or whatever. <laughs> the thing about the Thin mm-hmm. White Duke, um, of course it's a persona and a character that he, uh, you know, fell himself into. But I, the way that I look at this, and even um, cocaine is referenced in this song. Yeah. Um you know, what are cocaine lines? They're thin white lines. Right. And uh, what are dukes do? Dukes generally rule over people. Right. Um, and so just, I don't know, maybe I'm being a little too literal here, but he was already representing the fact that the thin white duke is ruling his lives, throwing darts in lovers' eyes. What happens when you get high? Generally, your eyes can either become pinpoints oh, huh. or dilate. Huh. And so Interesting. Um, I was oh. thinking of... That as well. Yeah. This well, might I, be a metaphor. It, it, it's probably yeah. a two-handed, like right. you know. I think. Well, I mean, also, I mean, it, when you think when you think of a uh, Ziggy Stardust to the uh, Halloween Jack-ish character from nineteen eighty four Diamond Dogs, mm-hmm. yeah, to the Young Americans phase. I mean, he does look like the way he dresses with the vest and the pants and everything. Like you look at that guy and you're like, oh, I could see him calling himself the Thin White Duke, you know. Right. But at the same yeah. time. Uh, uh, this metaphor here does actually work for me. 
Yeah. And I think I think you bring up a good point because kind of as I look at my notes on the lyrics, when I get to the bottom, what I basically said, like in summation, he's toying with references to drugs, religion, love, magic in the beginning. But in the end, it's kind of like those things gave him his power to be this like fascist tank barreling through Europe or, or yeah. actually in America because it was... Thin White Duke was kind of his escape from America while he was living in it. He was he was this this uh, British outsider. Well, yeah, the European canon is he like he's pointing. He's basically saying he basically told you he's going to make the 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 Berlin trilogy before he made it. Right. Yeah. He's saying, yeah. all right, it's uh, I've absorbed all this American life. I've done the man. I, I've been the man who fell to Earth, who watched TV and drank booze all the time. I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna get out of here and get in touch with my roots and probably go. Uh, you know, it's a, basically make Philip Glass music uh, right. from my next three albums. And, and we did mention this song when we did the title track from Black Star, and they are sister songs. I mean, they're they're both long. They both have movements. They're both have characters that reference Crowley and, um, you know, gain power through, you know, dark, spiritual, magical ways. Um I think this one song speaks to me a little bit better in terms of the way that it flows. Oh, this song moves, man. Uh, I mean, I, I do like the song Black Star, but I think it's more avant-garde. This one is an absolute, even if you're not really paying attention to the lyrics and trying to find the meaning in it, yeah. it is an absolute jam. When it kicks yeah. in, the, once there were mountains on mountains and once there were sunbirds to soar with and once I could never be down, and it just starts like... It's just... Yeah. I can't, like, I remember the first time I... Uh, this is when I lived with Mark, early 20s, and I listened to this album by myself in the living room. And this song, I was like, it's one of the songs where, when the first time you hear it, you're looking at the speaker being like, what is coming out of this? Yeah. You know, if just, I was home at the time, I probably popped out and be like, what are you listening to? You know, yeah, like, it, what is this? Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah, like, it's so it, good. Yeah. So good. The, the, the way that Return of the Thin White Duke kind of wafts in, here are we. Like, that's just so arresting the way it slinks into the room. But then when it kicks into that second movement and it turns into uh, what you call the end of um, all the love in the world. It's Uncle Fun Times uh, acoustic jam or something. <laughs> Uncle like that. Fun Times jam party definitely yeah. is the second yeah. half of this song. <laughs> yeah. And you imagine people clapping and just stomping their feet. And I can't believe how much it grooves for something that's kind of so dark. It's right. very, yeah, it's, pretty it's dark awesome song. juxtaposition. Yeah. Um, there's a single edit. Every song on this album has a single edit. Um, most of the single edits aren't that different. This one, did you guys listen to the single edit for this one? I didn't, no. It's just, they, what's it's, it reduce it down to? In so terms it's, of time? oh, it's like four minute song. What wow. they do is they, they get, they cut out the whole beginning. I okay. can't. So yeah. it's just the swirling right before it gets into, it's too late. It's, it's yeah. just the swirling before that. And then it's that, that's the song. So it is just that jammy part. But it totally misses the point of the song. Wow. But, you know, wow. they, they had to sell it, I guess. But sure. they had to turn it into a single. Um, Which I'm surprised. I mean, that's just album-oriented rock that you just want to make sure exactly. that that's just on right. the cut. Yeah. You make the next track the single. Yeah. And there are some other, you know, right. obviously candidates for, for hot singles. But somehow every song had a single released off this album. So. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but this song is fantastic. Uh, I do want to talk about a few more things in regards to the Thin White Duke character. Uh, a listener of the show, and actually just an old internet buddy of mine, um, goes by the name David Faust. I don't know if that's his real name, but uh, Faust would be a great last name if it really was. But he, he, he was telling me about how this era of Bowie, 
was influenced by the uh, sci-fi author Michael Moorcock. Not familiar. I, I'm not really either more by name than anything. Um, he used to edit a magazine called New Worlds, which was a British sci-fi magazine. But I imagine he wrote a lot of the same stories that like your Alan Moores and your Graham Morrisons the world got into. But there was two characters that Michael Moorcock came up with. And uh, one of which, Jerry Cornelius. And Jerry Cornelius is basically a mysterious androgynous secret agent with a knack for uh, a sartorial el- elegance and introverted remove. Well, there you so go. basically, yeah, a special agent that looks like the guy from Man, Man Who uh, Fell to Earth. And on top of that, he's a rock star. So there's that. And then uh, there's this character called uh, Elric, who basically, have you guys ever heard of the Witcher video games? Yeah, I've heard of them. No. I've heard they're good. They're all right. Yeah. <clears throat> um, they're, they're heavy RPG. Yeah. Um, they're making a TV show starring the guy that plays Superman that you like. Henry Cavill? Henry Cavill. Yeah. All right. And the reason I bring it up is because... Well, he does a good job of Superman. Those movies aren't good. No, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just trying to throw you a bone there. Yeah. Um, but anyhow, the, 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 this Elric character looks like the Witcher, which is a, a pale, white-haired... Basically, oh, get really nerdy. He looks like a Targaryen. There you go. And David Bowie kind of looked like a Targaryen mm. yeah, with short yeah. hair in this, oh, yeah. this thing. So I, I one of my favorite nerdy references to the Thin White Duke is the Grant Morrison Batman. He his version of the Joker is the Thin White Duke of Death, and he's like very Bowie inspired or this era as far as his costume and the way he acts. So, anyways, I, I enjoy I enjoy that version of the Joker. Um, I don't know if you guys noticed, but. Did you listen to this on headphones or both um, uh, headphones and car speakers? Same with me. When you had headphones on, I don't know if one of them popped out ever, but they do a lot of work with the uh, moving between channels. A little panning. Song. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you really notice it on this Especially song. at the beginning. If you only listen to one side in this song, you only hear half of it. Yeah. And so yeah. you, you got to make sure to get the whole picture. This song is a uh, game changer for for uh, rock music. Well, that they, they just so good. During the, the, the dance party, the outro gets going and... Uh, Carlos Alomar is holding it down, and then Earl Slick just starts going, and just starts going all over the place. Yeah. And uh, it's just, it just gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. I think from what I gather, Earl Slick is responsible for any of the really cool feedback work that's on this album. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about him a little bit later on the record. Yeah. And Um, um, there's one particular track that is just an absolute standout that he does a lot of heavy lifting. I think I know what you're talking about. Oh, yeah. And he has a good first name. Um, yeah. Any any other thoughts on Station to Station, which we agree is a no. ten out of ten? It's nope. an absolute masterpiece. Yeah. It's a, it's a great opening track. Um, yeah, I I love that song. It's such and it's ballsy too. A and ten, it flies right by too for ten minutes. It does. Yeah, yes, man. a ten minute opening track that flies right by. Yeah. And um, my final thought on it is, did you guys listen to the Melvins version of it? No. Oh, no. The Melvins do a cover of it. Uh, they released an album in 2013 called Everybody Loves Sausage. Which is all Shit. covers. Yes. Yeah. I haven't heard it, but I, yeah, I read that they did it. Yeah, yeah. it's good. It's, yeah. it's very fuzzy. It's, um... Buzz's delivery is pretty amusing. Him, I think Buzz I have from, heard that version a long time yeah. ago, and uh, I remember actually being where, somewhat impressed. All the links you were sending us, where was that one, Steve? Uh, you know, damn it. Yeah. Let me down. You let me down. It's good psychic sludge. Yeah. Um, check it out. All right. So that's it. Let's go to track two. Track two. We Little got banger called Golden Years. Nights are warm and the days are young. 
Ah, yes, it's that time again. Everyone's favorite time. The shilling time. A reminder that we now have a Patreon, which you can find at Patreon forward slash pod like a whole. And since the Patreon was announced a few weeks ago, we have four new Patreon subscribers. That would be Summer C, John Calhoun, Daniel Kilman, and Grace. Thank you for your patronage. And remember, everyone, the show will always be for free. But for the low, low subscription of $2, or if you're feeling a little extravagant, $4 a month, all these podcasts you get for free, you can get for 2 or $4 a month. I think it's wonderful. You know, there's a, there's a lot of overhead goes into an operation like this, with three dads, with children. Maybe they want to have more children. Maybe one of them moved into a house recently that might be haunted. And getting rid of poltergeists is not cheap. So, the show will always be free. The Bowie proper episodes will be free. The bonus episodes, like the top five one we just released, always going to be free. But if you'd like to become a patron, we wouldn't stop you. Thank you for listening. So that was Golden Years. Um, it's uh, quite a little funky number. Um, my first introduction to hearing this song was, of course, uh, before I got into David Bowie. I was into Marilyn Manson because of the Nine Inch Nails connection. This song was covered by Marilyn Manson during the Dead Man on Campus soundtrack. <laughs> Um, but I, <laughs> I strongly prefer the David Bowie version. It is a lot funkier. Um, you know, I heard Station to Station, I believe, before I heard Young Americans. This song could absolutely fit on Young Americans in that sort of, uh, I don't want to call this blue-eyed soul because that seems to have some negative connotations. But apparently this song was originally written for Elvis Presley, um, who declined. And I could kind of see it in terms of how he was singing and delivering this song. Um, and, uh, also the, this was apparently the working title for this album. Yeah. Or yeah, I, apparently he tried to submit it, but the Colonel didn't let it, didn't let it get past the negotiation I can actually phase. I can imagine this is a, is a, uh, lyrically is an Elvis song, mm-hmm. not musically as much uh, during this era, Elvis brand I mean, new Cadillac era. No, this is the suspicious minds era, yeah. you know. The uh, Marilyn Manson recording was done during the Mechanical Air uh, Animals sessions. Yeah. Which is kind of like a Bowie album. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we've talked plenty about yeah. that. Uh, yeah, and surprisingly, I'm not a huge fan of that cover. Yeah, I mean, like, it's it's now uh, 
when I first heard it, I was like, okay, you know, he's really embracing him wanting to be David Bowie in this phase of his career um, to the point where it almost seemed desperate for him to like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I'm really this persona of the thin white Duke in my mm-hmm. now version of uh, Marilyn Manson. Whatever I am. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I strongly prefer, it's not my favorite David Bowie song, but it, it is a great song. It's so catchy good. as shit. So good. It's got that funk guitar work. Yeah. Um, but it's not, there's something else to it. It, it, is, it, is, it is a funk thing. And when you see him perform it at various times, the way he's dancing and stuff, I mean, it seems very disco-y funk, but there's something else to it. There's this layer of of um, keyboards that kind of re- harkens back to the Krautrock kind of stuff he's been listening to. Yeah. And then the way he wails on that, um, the chorus, the... Uh, yeah. The Thousand All Years. All the way! Yeah. And then, like, um, uh, he also... He just, yeah, his vocal work is yeah. all over the map in yeah. this one. Like, some of these days, yeah. uh, I really yeah, enjoy yeah. that part. The hand claps and the foot stomps, yeah. I mean, it just made Some snaps. This, exactly. It's, I could honestly picture a dance-off on a disco club floor to this song. Um, maybe that actually existed, or maybe I'm thinking everything was like Zoolander or something like that, which David Bowie appeared in. Um, right. But, uh, yeah, I like this no, song. It's, it's a it's, good song. I think it's a great song. Um, and, uh, funny enough, this song was the theme song to Stephen King's golden years, 1991 miniseries. <laughs> I do remember that. Yeah. Was yeah. that about it? I never, it was about, about like old, old people g- that were aging backwards. Basically. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Yep. Um, and, uh, was using that film, the night, a night's tale, which is actually a pretty enjoyable Heath Ledger vehicle sure if you haven't seen it never watched that movie yeah. I, it's, it's kind of weird because it's got mod well not modern but it's got like 70s music but it's a yeah you know, medieval 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 movie but it's 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 enjoyable i'm not against it it just it wasn't ever on my radar right. never made right. time for it's it it's funnier it's funnier than it should be kind of basking in celebrity that he was experiencing and like a social life but kind of realizing that it's not enough bring it and and kind of like just kind of pleading to you know, whoever his companion is rather realizing that whatever he's got with that person isn't, isn't going to satisfy. Well, I mean, and Angela Bowie claimed that he called her up and sang this to her over the phone. Oh, okay. So we all know how that worked out. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's all right. Uh, It's my least favorite song on the album. Wow. But it doesn't mean it's bad. You know, I would probably agree with you. Um, and, but it's still, I'm, you know, it's still a great song, but it's probably my least favorite. Yeah, the well. lowest of the low in this album are still higher and a lot of it was Oh yeah. No, I I mean I, I wouldn't I would never skip this song. Yeah. I just oh, in I, terms of everything that compares to it. I can't, decide, that might, I can't decide if I like this song better. I can't decide if this is my favorite or if the last one's my favorite. Those are both tied for my favorites. So the last one uh, we'll get there. Yeah, so we'll get sorry there. about yeah, that. We'll get Steven. there. But I can't yeah. decide. A couple, a couple things. Um, I, I just think this is a perfect, perfect uh, single. It's, it's. It actually, the single came out before the two months before the album. Actually, yeah. yeah. One thing I can't handle with it though, if I were on acid, I cannot listen to it. They do this trick with the vocals in this song during the verse, where it makes you feel like you're on drugs. Mm-hmm. The way the golden years, yeah, go. It just Angel. sounds the way, the way it warbles. It's, it's kind of tough. And if you had a little bit of something in your brain at the time, that would be uh, that'd be rough to deal with. That's the true litmus test for a good album. 
will it will it harsh my high? It's yeah. kind of like John Stewart's part in Half Baked. Uh, <laughs> ever look at a dollar high? I love the the uptick when it gets into the chorus when he you know my soul. It takes it to a higher register that I appreciate. I think it's the most uh, probably the most accessible song on the album. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like every other song is either too long, not rocking enough, or too weird. This one definitely screams out, "Make this our single." Did you guys watch the Soul Train? Oh yeah, um, I've seen it before. I uh, I I didn't do my prep work on that one. I mean, but it's I not as know. much of a, of a train wreck it's as it's the, supposed it's to be. It's but the he's idea, very though, drunk. Just, I mean, he's just lip singing. Right? He's lip singing, but or he's, trying to at least. He's totally drunk. Yeah, yeah. And he's just he's basically just missing entire verses. And yeah, yeah. It's, it's you know yeah. we've seen that happen a billion times. But my, it, fa- it, my favorite time that ever happened was when Nirvana was on one of those shows. Oh, and they purposely yeah. fucked off. Oh yeah, and, yeah. Uh, Top of the pops. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, the Bowie one. Uh, what's I read on uh, the the Pushing Ahead the Dame uh, website that I reference every episode. It, he kind of mentions the that the writer mentions that it's a perfect analogy for how Bowie felt in this because he's like lost the whole song um, and you know obviously inebriated. But the crowd, the studio audience, is dancing like they're feeling it, like they're <laughs> like they're into it, and he just looks so alone on that stage. It's, it's so sad, and it's perfect for it's a perfect analogy for how what he was yeah. going through during this era. So That's what's interesting great. is that even though it was the uh, the lead single, it wasn't played on the tours for this album at all. So yeah, yeah. I'm not sure what the deal. Rarely was. played, rarely played live. No, but if you if you want to get on the internet, uh, there's a version by Marilyn Manson. Pearl Jam does a version of it. The Flaming Lips does a version of it. Uh, James Murphy does a little Casio tone version of it. I think it was for a soundtrack or something. Yeah. Um, it was like Ben Stiller movie. It's like a minute and a half long. Yeah. So it's not bad. It's not the best song on the album, but it's a classic. I mean, everybody listens to this probably has heard it before. So, yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to track three, which is Word on a Wing. sounding um it's a synth it, it sounds like an organ though it's like almost almost like a synth out church organ and a uh choir singer that brings us into it which is perfect because this is a song ruminating on his relationship to god it's it's a ballad it's a very piano heavy, heavy ballad but it's not afraid to rock it's just a, it's just slower than most of the most of the songs on here piano's pounding away uh guitar is shredding but not overtaking the song it comes in and out when it needs to I'm talking about this this song he said it's his cry for help to the drugs and what he considered psychological terror making man who fell to earth he felt this was 
he felt that film was so put him in such a cold, removed place from 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 spirituality that he had to dive kind of head first and figure out where he kind of fit in all of that. At the same time, he's reading Crowley and whatnot. Yeah. But also he's going through things that exhaust him so much between the cocaine and whatever mental and emotional place man that fell earth put him in. That he had to write a song that was holding a cross up in front of a vampire. Exactly. You know, that's perfect. It's perfect example. That's what he he basically thought this was his like I, apparently at the same when he moved into his his new digs in L.A., he had a witch come and cleanse, burn some stuff and cleanse the room of evil spirits. He is looking he, he's looking for a way to fi- fall into God's plan, but um, and, and feel some connection to something spiritually. There's a great line where he's, you know, basically saying, like, just because I believe doesn't mean I'm not going to ask questions. Kind of the kind of kind of as a as a message. Very it's a very intellectual way of looking at at spirituality. At first, this song is uh, sometimes if I am not working with the record and really getting immersed myself, sometimes I confuse this one with the last track. Their um, titles are too similar. <laughs> They're like W title. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But um, when I dig into this record and really just listen to this one, this song over and over, the part that really um, gets me just fully bought into this song is Ooh, ready to shape the scheme of things. Oh um, yeah. That little out, uh, it's in the verse two. Um, we still have another chorus after that. Um, there's just a lot dynamically happening with his vocal delivery of how he performs this song. Um, where some, of the, the, some of his best vocal work. I, I oh, it's 100% amazing. agree. It's, yeah. it's impressive. It's so good. Um, it really runs the gamut between, um, you can really hear that despair in his voice. Um, and it, it doesn't seem like he's faking it at all. You can really get the emotion in his performance. And there's almost something to be said for, you know, artists always talk about how uh, when they sober up, you know, ah, oh, well, you don't need to get messed up to do something good. And I agree to an extent. But even though he can't remember any recording this, apparently, whatever he was doing was working for him performance wise. Yeah. You know, I mean, it wasn't affecting the way he sang. Yeah. You know, this is a definitely this album is just is, is the recording of this album is perfection. And the, the vocals in this track and the last one both are. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if Bowie is, you know, not cognizant of what he was doing and have, has any memory of uh, recording this record, um, you know, he surely didn't phone it in. He sounds, like, he sounds like a pro. He yeah. sounds like a pro in it. Yeah, I, 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 I've long kind of thought, like, when you look at drugs and, and musicians, there is that window of time where it actually, you know, it adds to their music as far as like, you know, giving them the energy or the stamina or expanding their mind to do what they want to do. And, and then, then they, and then, and then they put high end of a low out. Right. Or something. And then, then, then eventually it, uh, <laughs> and then eventually it, it taps them out and it, and it, and it, and it drops them to new lows. But this, this you're, you're finding him, um, it working for him. So, yeah, but yeah, this is his talisman, his protective talisman. <laughs> they actually, yeah, he started a, and he claims that he is during this time that he started wearing a, a silver crucifix that he wore until like the day he died. Yeah. And it came around this, this, this time. Yeah. But I, don't, I mean, David Bowie really was not a spiritual or religious man. It seems maybe a spiritual, yeah, but maybe was, not religious. By I any think means. he was spiritual and fascinated by religions. You're right. But didn't just buy in any no. of them. 
I mean, I know that he kind of dabbled with Buddhism for a while, but I think like uh, one of, not the Dalai Lama, but, you know, a Buddhist monk, maybe one of the lamas basically told him, you need to go be a musician, you know, be that, don't be, don't right. really follow this. Uh, yeah. So well, he, he specifically said, you know, and people referring to these same conversations for the same album was religion is for people who believe in hell. Spirituality is for people who've been there. So huh. there you go. Kind of yeah. get it. Yeah, you know? I mean, he and he's also said that like and that's what this song definitely yeah. is. Is this is a cry for help song to anybody for the love of God, right? For the love of anyone, right? And he Give was saying he was saying like Bob Dylan was about to go through his born again phase, and he's like, this is the closest I got to that. Yeah, just desperate for some kind of connection to something something bigger. Um, but I love that even that being what it is, it's still skeptical and it's still intelligent. Um, so it's yeah. a great song. It's, 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 it's one that I had very little, I mean, I know I'd heard it, but I maybe didn't pay it. No, never mind until now. And, yeah. and I think it's, it's, it's an all timer. It's really good. A tip of the hat to Ray Britton's, uh, soaring piano work on it. Oh yeah. There's just cascading, uh, just grand pianos all up and down oh, this yeah. thing. And in the climax of the song, his vocals with the piano swirl- swirling around it is beautiful. And then during the last minute, you start to hear that synthesizer, that ice synth. Right. And then as the vocals all fall away, it continues. Mm-hmm. And it definitely sounds like a future vision, if you will. Yeah. Of uh, what's to come in low. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I think even Bowie kind of commented on that, that almost in every one of his albums, like let's say, uh, do you want to rock and roll with me back on Ziggy Stardust? Kind of said, hey, in a few years, we'll be doing Young Americans. This is kind of the same thing. Right. We're like, hey, here's a, a glimpse of what we're going to do next. Yeah. Right. It's a good song. Yeah. It's and a good song. Yeah. And then the song ends and you flip the record over for the second half. TVC15, which was uh, apparently inspired by a Niggy Pop hallucination that a television set in Bowie's home had swallowed his girlfriend. By the way, they just came off of uh, trying to make a record the year before again, (laughs) and they didn't. And I'm wondering if uh, that hallucination had anything to do with it. But um, (laughs) this, this jaunty ditty on an album that's mournful and icy and groovy all at the same time. Comes out of left field and is almost a comedic, uh, sounds like Lou Reed wrote these lyrics. And uh, I love this song. And I'll, I'll talk more about it, but Eric, what do you think about this song? It has the catchiest hook of all time. The, the oh, my TV. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh-oh. TVC15. And I think yeah. he says it 37 <laughs> times in yeah. the song. I, I like it. I like the weirdness of it. I really do. But I don't like the saloon pianos in this song. Oh my god, you're weird. I know. The I, saloon pianos make it. I for gotta me. say, they're 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 two in the forefront in this song. It, that's wild. That, that, that's I, my favorite I, part I, of it. I don't know why. <laughs> I, but I don't dislike the song. I do like it, but it's not my top my top three on this album. 
Um, it's so weird and, and, and enjoyable, but it, it's a great song. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think it would song. fit better on Lodger. It's got this sure. weirdness where I think like, oh, yes. that's, that's I, Lodger weirdness. I, yeah, 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 but definitely. I still, I, I love this. It's, it's so absurd between the way it sounds with the piano. And then the lyrical content is just preposterous. A TV chasing a woman around, you know. Yeah, right. It's basically that the doesn't bother me. I like yeah, that. Ah, yes. Yeah, this is the Requiem for a Dreams refrigerator <laughs> yeah. with yeah. Jared Leto's mom. Yeah, you know? the refrigerator yeah. instead of the TV. Yeah. yeah. So the story behind it, yes, of course, you're right. Uh, the story in the song, uh, there's a holographic TV, TVC15. The narrator's girlfriend crawls into the TV, and the narrator desires to crawl in after her. Yeah. Um, I love the line, one of these nights I may just jump down that rainbow way, yeah. which is like the Bifrost. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, in Thor, but also like, you know, that's, I don't know, the 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 way TV technology worked, there was like a rainbow of colors that, that, that would be projected. So I love the double imagery there. And I, I uh, after watching Man Who Fell to Earth and just seeing the TV connection of how the media, uh, well, television can just suck you in um, and basically consume uh, I think that's probably the metaphor that we're also trying to make here, um, rather than it just being a narrative story of. Uh, there's definitely a man who fell the earth uh, influence on the lyrical yeah. content of the yeah. song. I, I love the music. I think the lyrics are a lot of fun. Um, I I'm a big fan. It's not my favorite song off the record. Um, I don't. I didn't really rank these songs. I do have a favorite. Uh, we haven't heard yeah. it yet, but uh, it it's not this one. Big fan of this song, though. Yeah. Big fan. Yeah, no, it's 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 a it's, little yeah. It's, it's got fun. it's got levity to it. Exactly. You know, yeah. and it's just once you you might hear the song for years and not know what it's about. Once you listen to the lyrics, you're like, "This is ridiculous." <laughs> <laughs> and it kind of reminds me when Eric introduced me to that Lou Reed or that Velvet Underground song, "The where, Gift." The Gift. Yeah. <laughs> where the guy puts himself in a box and mails himself to his girlfriend and thinks he's cheating on him. Yeah. And then they say, "What's in that box?" I don't know. Let's stab it with swords. I'm like. It's yeah, that kind of lyrical yeah. nonsense that I really appreciate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a gem. This song is an absolute gem. Apparently, uh, that scene in Man Who Fell to Earth where he's surrounded by TVs was then um, inspired that that panel in uh, Watchmen. Um, there's a panel in Watchmen with uh, a bunch of different TVs surrounding a character. Anyways, just a just a little pop culture connection there. The old timey honky tonk piano. I could see how it could turn you off, but I think it's definitely a turn on. Right. I mean, you know, the, the I thing, like it. That, I, yeah. that is all over this album, but I just, they, I just never feels as oppressive as it does in this song to me. It doesn't like, it doesn't bother me on any of the other tracks. It just, it just feels almost oppressive on this song. So that's just, that's just <laughs> yeah, no, I still love, I still love I'm a fan of it. Like, back to my lodger comment. Yeah. Carlos Salomar said that the, the basically they were going for a boys keep swinging vibe. You know, yeah, and uh, I could definitely sing that. Um, it was played live on the um, the tour for this album, so I thought it was worth the time of day. Yeah, yeah. But um, I also love those oh 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 ohs, like all that. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. Everything about yeah. it works for me. Yeah, me too. But uh, yeah. I can see how it could be a skipper for some people. But. Yeah, not a skipper for me. I, I I listen to it all the way through and enjoy it. It's just uh, you know, I'm just trying to think critically. Now, but let's 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 talk though. We have not covered the Claus Nomi weirdness Saturday Night Live stuff. Yeah. And well, this they was, yeah, this is a great... And this was one of them. Yeah. So David Bowie was on a Saturday Night Live, Martin Sheen hosted, and one of the performances they did was this song. Yep. Correct? Mm-hmm. And they had Claus Nomi and some other weird mimes dressed as weird one-color yeah. clowns. Claus Nomi has, like, red hair and, like, a red cloak or something and like who's, that. Can you give us a little bit of who Claus Nomi is? Well, he came up with the avant-garde, like, New York, I feel like fact, like the factory, like Andy Warhol's factory group. 
he would sing, he had almost like an operatic voice. Like he would sing almost classical opera over that like Velvet Underground, a New York kind of noise rock sound. Um, it's not for me, but he he is interesting and kind of, you know, definitely a part of that scene. Uh, there's a documentary about him that's that's worth a watch. Uh, anyways, he's just a character. And um, and, you know, Bowie brought him out to to add a little uh, of his uh, operatic whales. Is that it actually was from I think it was from a few years later. It was 1979. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, that night they played uh, this song and it sold the world. Ah. Like for one part of the song, he's wearing a weird plastic suit. Um, I can't really explain it. You got to look it up to believe it. Yeah, it's like a there's like mirror tricks going on in that one. It's for, it's for cool. a for a yeah. Saturday Night Live musical performance. They go way above and beyond. Yeah, it was it was so awesome. look that up. Yeah, yeah. David Bowie, Claus, Nomi, Man Who Sold the World, and TVC One Five and SNL. Yeah, uh, it, yeah, it's good stuff. Absolutely. So let's go into track five, which is Stay. Which my notes say is the the most motherfucking kicking song on this album. Is this your favorite song on the album? Yes, it is. Yeah, wow, mine, okay. mine too. Oh. Mine too. Ah, yeah. And it wasn't always that way. Right. It used to be the title track. Me too. I actually used to. Um, I can't tell you why. There's a, there's certain files you per, put certain types of songs in, and for some reason, without ever like paying attention to it enough. I used to toss stay in the uh, the fame and the fashion file. Yeah. Doesn't make any sense. It doesn't sound like those songs at all. But that's where it went. It was it was miscategorized. Um it's a groovy, thumping, sexy late night track that uh I can't get enough of. Eric, what do you think of it? I think it's great. I think it is yeah, it starts we all made the joke that it's like shaft it's like shut your mouth, you know. Or maybe Maybe the streets of San Francisco, right? Which yeah. uh, when I like, I'm gonna be bitching about not doing Diamond Dogs until we do Diamond Dogs. Yeah, Diamond Dogs might be my sleeper favorite David Bowie album. Yeah, which I would never come out and say that, but then when I think about it, I love it. And I'm just bringing that up because 1984 is totally like wah guitar. Yeah, streets of San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. This definitely gives me that same vibe. There's, yeah, wah wah. You know, guitar. The bass and the drums are just going ape shit. Got on conga drums going. Yeah, on. conga like yeah auxiliary percussion. This song pops in that Harry Maslin. Uh, reworking um and what he's doing with his vocals is very interesting because one could make a case that that this is as far as his as far as his lyrics about love on this album this is the only one that's not super cold like he is trying to reach out and make a connection but when he does it he his vocal delivery gets 
off, it, and he does it on purpose. It's almost like he's out of his skin. He's he, like he's breaking character, and he's not comfortable doing it um, when he's singing on this song. And I think it's totally intentional how he's doing that. And I think it's an awesome character moment, so to speak, for the Thin White Duke. Um, and yeah, this song is groovy as hell. It's a pure funk song. To your point, that's interesting because I think the song, and I agree with you, that he's almost making a human connection. But the human connection I get is that it's like you woke, like even some of the bands said. The vibe we were going, like, at this time we were staying up all night doing blow. And this is kind of like, hey, dude, I mean, I had a good night with you. Do you just want to stay here? You know? Right. And it's still dovetailing out of a debauchery. Sure, sure. Yeah, because when that initial connection is made with all this other stuff involved, I mean, how real is it? Yeah. So I think that's fair. Um, but yeah, this is a real cool song. This is another one I never, I mean, I'd heard. But uh, never really dug into. Um, and I like what he's doing with his vocal tone. Like I said, he's doing awkward delivery on purpose. And the way he's the, the way he's singing, the range he's staying in is kind of different than any other song on this album. And I enjoy it. Um, yeah, for me, that uh, Dirty Guitar Lick by Earl Slick. Um, his real name is Frank Mandaloni. Uh, as we were looking like, we can't, that can't be his real name. And sure <laughs> enough, it's not. But he'll always be known as Earl Slick to me. But uh, that, that uh intro guitar lick and then as it just goes into this uh jam at the end of that uh uh and at the end of the song the outro it's just a unforgettable song and i don't know why um it was a sleeper hit for me because i always when i listened to station to station it was track one and tvc one five and golden years were always the ones that i remembered and i remember always liking stay but uh I this song is an absolute um banger. It yeah. is uh just a really great song. Um I love the lyrics and it does have that uh human struggle obviously the the monotony of just always getting high and you're trying to muster up the courage to probably break out of that and say I need some support. I wish you would just stay with me um and not cuz I'm sure as you get spiraled out into drug addiction that's the only thing that's on your mind is getting high not so much around the people that you're with. Um, but if he could potentially get that woman that he loves or whomever that he wants them to stay with him, maybe that he wouldn't necessarily have to get high. Right. I don't know. That would fill the, that would fill the, 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 the hole. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah. Uh, it's interesting that, um, David Bowie has always been a conceptual artist. Um, but, I don't really consider this a, a concept album by any means, um, but there has been, you know, an overarching theme. Yeah, just in the sense that he is playing a character in this, and each song you could make a case for that being a yeah being a being a, a, a part of the story of the Thin White Duke. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, that line the the line in the chorus is "Stay." That's what I meant to say or do something. Like that's 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 very good, you know. Yeah, basically saying I've always made Jesus like. I've been wanting to tell you to stay, but I can never just do it because whatever state we're in. Right. So exactly. It's kind of heartbreaking. Right. Uh, but what I never say is stay this time. I really meant to, but I, I just, I can't, you know, and you know, that's, uh, yeah. Like I said, heartbreaking. Yeah. If, uh, if you're listening to this and that means you are look up the, uh, the version of this for the Dinah shore show. It's got it's got that rhythm section that we're talking about that's his band right now, up until Scary Monsters, and he's got some uh, big pants on, and he does some good shuffles, and I, anybody should watch it. It's uh, it's wonderful. And yeah, I gotta agree with Mark. 
Earl Slick just tears it up in the outro of this song. And it, it, it's not too showy. It's going on kind of in the background, but uh, the outro is, is something else. Did you guys look up any covers? No. no. Was there? Friend of the show, Peter Murphy, covered this song. Oh, oh. I can see that. Yeah. I can see it with the vocal delivery, but I uh, his music really gets that funky. So it's a lot more minimalistic, actually. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's on a 2011 album called uh, The World uh, Will Fall Apart. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Um, look it up. That's a yeah. uh, solo record, or is it with Bauhaus? It's a solo record. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I could definitely see it with the vocal delivery, so I should check that out. That's no, cool. Stay's a highlight, a showpiece for the musicians. And, it, and on this album, for me, it's the one that, like, I thought I knew this album well enough, mm-hmm. but it's the song that definitely I became more familiar with, and my opinion changed of. Yeah. It's a goodie. And that brings us to our closing track. Wild is the Wind. cover song originally written by Dmitry Timokin and Ned Washington a classical tune and it kind of reminds me of a um, the kind of track you'd see in a, a James Bond movie from. there was a western uh, called Wild as the Wind and Johnny Mathis sang the theme song it was written by those gentlemen and, yeah. and uh, performed by Johnny Mathis yeah. but it- originally I didn't really care for this song as much as uh, I, I thought it, it doesn't really go anywhere it takes a while to get to where it needs to be um, I'm not a huge big fan of uh, crooning ballads um, without really a lot of uh, vocal or um, orchestral dynamics. This song absolutely grew on me. I do love his vocal performance. The part that always gives me chills is uh, towards the end of the song, There's uh, he leaves his vocal delivery hanging with uh, your spring to me, all things to me, don't you know your life itself? And it just hangs there for a second. Dennis Davis has this amazing little drum fill and then it gets right back into the verse. It's just a, it's a much needed uh, sense of dynamic that I, uh, that just instantly made it click for me. I always appreciated the vocal performance, but um, I needed it to go somewhere uh, musically. And it's a great song. I, I do really, really have come to appreciate this song and it's a, it's a fine album closer. I think it's going plenty of places musically myself. Well, I mean, I, I think it's more of a vocal performance, vocal-driven song than it is like... His uh, vocals are amazing on this. Exactly. I, I think he told yep. somebody in an interview that this is one of his most proud moments as a singer. Yeah, I would song. agree with that. And um, what gets me is right off the bat, the guitar... That goes on for the whole song. Uh, that just gets me like it's a moody guitar. Yeah. It is very Bondish. It sounds almost like that, that Bond 
strumming. Do you remember his version of uh, the Port of Amsterdam? No. Do you, Mark? I don't. I think it's only in certain versions of pinups. Okay. But it has that like Spanish strumming to it. Okay. And it definitely reminds me of that. And I love that. And that reminds me of the 1960s. You know, right. yeah. Classical 1960s. Yeah. Uh, espionage. When I say the of. music doesn't go anywhere, I think it's it, it's more complementing his performance rather than it trying to share the stage with it. I think it was first and foremost, it's a vocal performance song with having originally done by Johnny Mathis in a film, for a film of the same title, and then um, the cover version done a couple years later by Nina Simone, which inspired him after meeting her to cover this song. Yeah, they're actually buddies, him and Nima Simone. On stage, sometimes we'll talk about their, their friendship. Yeah. And his version's definitely in the spirit of hers. Yeah. Which also, uh, Lauren Hill does a pretty good cover of it, too, based off uh, Nina Simone's version. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. He, uh, Bowie told Cameron Crowe in that interview I was talking about, this is, the song has a good European feel. It's like a bridge to the future, which is, uh, you know, kind of the European canon mode that he he's been in for this album sure um yeah at first because you know he didn't write the lyrics and just the sound of the song it's an interesting inclusion on this album but as you follow it through you know at first i didn't think it fit but i didn't dislike it i just didn't know if it fit or not but then by the time the song ends yeah once yeah once the the rhythm section section does get to do their thing at the end it's this is a a fitting closer for this album yeah you know, I think it it, it, it kind of goes hand in hand with uh, Warden uh, Warden the Wing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're, 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 slow, they're, yeah, those are the slow the slow tracks. Yeah, and also I think uh, if you know the story behind the album and all the emotional right. and physical duress going on, this is a good closer to it. Yeah. Um, a few years after it was released, they made a video for it, and it's this like minimalistic. Looks like you're in a the French poetry reading. And it's black and white, David Bowie on a stool, the whole band on a stool. And uh, Tony Visconti and uh, Coco Schwab are, are playing bass and guitar. Yeah. Nice. Or at least mimicking it. And uh, it's very good. I think anybody should look it up. Cool. But uh, I, think it's a great, I think it's a great closer. It's fitting in this era where he's doing a lot of more soulful vocalizations to do this song. Yeah. Um, he really hits some notes on this track. That you know he's capable of. And that, that's, that's the one thing is that the guy can play every instrument, and he can hit the whole range. He can go very low, and he can go very high. And um, on this track, I think he shows you how well he can sing when he wants to. He's a special guy that did Bowie. Absolutely. So closing thoughts. What what do you rank out of five lightning bolts? What, do you, what are you giving this bad boy? Steven? A 4.5. 4.5. Near, right. what, what gives it the 0.5 deduction for the, you? The, just because I still don't think I know what a, uh, a perfect album is for this project we're doing yeah maybe by the time we're done with it i will go back and give it a five but right now i mean maybe it's because i skip golden years sometimes or or i don't skip golden years but maybe because golden you like i think golden years i'm just like eh, it, 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 it doesn't grab me like the rest of the tracks do right but i mean pound for pound it's it, it's every song is uh worth listening to yeah and um they do a lot with a little on the, on this record i mean the band is pretty tight it's pretty small, and uh, they still manage to go to a lot of different places. I, I think it's a, it's almost a perfect album. Yeah. So, there you go, Eric. This is a four out of five for me. Yeah, not. I mean, I love I love what they do with this album, um, and some of the instrumentation, though not my 
preferred genre that Bowie tends to t- tends to dabble in, which is the funky, uh, you know, disco-y kind of thing. Um, they do the best they can with that, but because it, you know, because his instrumentation gets much more in my wheelhouse as it goes on, I, I those kind of I'm reserving the five out of fives for. It's fantastic. They they they're 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 on point on this album, and it's it's lovely. I love I love the funk. Gosh, I, I don't know. It doesn't make it perfect for me, but the the funk isn't holding it back. Um, this isn't my favorite David Bowie album, but I'm gonna go ahead and give it a five out of five. Very good. I was close to doing it myself. Um, I think the, every song on here is phenomenal. Um, even though uh, in my earlier listening a long time ago, it was an album that I always appreciated. I would probably put this in my. It's absolutely my top ten. It could even be in my top five when we're all done here. But I do think it is an absolute um, achievement um, in his vocal performance and uh, <laughs> musicianship. Um, it, it's got everything. It's six tracks and not a single one is filler in my mind. Um, I think that they all are in their right place. Um, so all things considered, I'm rounding up instead of a 4.5 or some other weird decimal, I'm giving it a five out of five. It's a great, yeah, it's great from top to bottom. This one had a, uh, did have a live album that came out at the same time that we're going to touch on Nazau, Nazau, how do you say that? I think it's about right. Nazau, I don't think it officially 76. came out at the time, but right. later it did. But it was, it was the era, it was his band, his out, right? It was pretty much the same it's, band. Yeah. Pretty much the same band, it was from the I, I Solar Tour. So Stacy uh, Heaton uh, was on lead guitar. Carlos Alomar was on rhythm guitar. George Murray bass. Tony K on keyboards, and Dennis Davis was on drums. Right. That was the live band there. And, yeah, and what's really cool about this album is it's it's got you know half the songs off this album, and they were clearly touring to promote this album. But then it also had a bunch of old classics, and um, almost all of them sound different on here because this band is doing more of a jazzy. Um, funky kind of approach to it, but they're not afraid to rock out when they need to. Um, and uh, so all the songs from this album sound great. Um, uh, Word on a Wing, I think, is really good live. They they really do a good job on that. Um, but then hearing how, what they do with like uh, Rebel Rebel and uh, Five Years and some of the old some of the old hits, um, but doing it with this this current band is such a fun experience. This is a really cool live album. The drums and the bass really kick on this this live oh, yeah. album. Yeah, the performances are great. Yeah, the Ice Solar Tour went from the majority of 1976. There's also Ice Solar Tour two tour and uh, 78. The thing I love about it is that Davis, his drumming, he kicks it up to another level. There's a lot of double kick drums on this live album, which for a metal nerd like me, I love. Mm-hmm. Whenever they can sneak in a double kick drum, I, I appreciate right. it. And uh, yeah, the songs off this album are uh, all done very well. I'd actually say I prefer the live version of Stay to the album version, just because it's uh, it tears it up and it's it gets grooving. so good. Yeah. And also, if you can find the uh, the the there's a version of this, um, I think in the Apple World somewhere, where there's a 13 minute version of Panic in Detroit with a with a drum solo in it, which I suggest seeking out. All right. So yeah, the Nassau live album is uh, it's worth worth going for. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. So, what is next? What is next? Who's got the dice? Let's dust off the dust off the diamond dice. All right, and let's see. So as always, we'll roll. If it's one that we've already rolled, then we'll roll the the uh, the D eight and see 
what it gives us. But let's see here. Here we go. Here we go. So you can blame me if it's t if it's terrible, but chances are it's gonna be great. got number eight, which is Diamond Dogs. There we go. <laughs> so, dear listeners, you know what this means. I was going to try to uh, do an episode of Metal Gear because of all the, the, the ties to uh, David Bowie. The biggest one is Diamond Dogs. So now I have to make that, that happen, which means you're going to hear from your, your friend Joe Vieira uh, from the uh, Five Year Gap episode. Yeah. So, Diamond Dogs, a lot of fun, that album. Uh, it's a good one to listen to. I listen to it all the time. So, well, excellent. I'm excited awesome. about this one. Yeah. I, I actually haven't dusted off this record. In I a while. have very little. Experience it's a strange with concept with album. It's uh, it's definitely it's got touches of the uh, Orwellian stuff going on in it. It's got a little bit of leftover of a Ziggy Stardust hangover on it. And um, yeah, all right. I like I like it well, a lot. That'd be fun. So so stepping back a few years. Okay. All right. So we went from album ten to album eight, which is Diamond Dogs. Um, so this has been Mark, Eric, and Steve. Uh, we are Pod Like a Hole. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram. Uh, uh, Patreon. Don't forget to look up that Patreon. There we go, the Patreon. If you want to give live. us a few shekels for staying up late at night and me uh, responding to texts from my wife upstairs asking what the Netflix password is, Google <laughs> uh, Patreon Pod Like a Hole. It's probably just Patreon slash Pod Like a Hole. But, yep. Uh, yep. but uh, yes, thank you all for your uh, participation out there, listeners. We always love um, your input and feedback. Um, until next time, we hope that we brought you closer to pod. Duh. <laughs> <laughs>